Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I host Dr. Adam Stern about his recent book that is available called Committed. Dr. Adam Stern is a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book about his experience when he was in psychiatry training. It's rather interesting. Uh, as you know, uh, you know, my listeners probably know by now that I love really reading books, and I enjoy um, reviewing books and even meeting authors of these books, because there's a writer in me that is waiting at some point to write something, but it's really always interesting to see how healthcare professionals and physicians end up becoming book writers. More importantly, what's the context and what's really inside that book and what led them to wanting to write this book? So we talk about that with Adam and we discuss a little bit into an important topic, which is imposter syndrome, which he really alludes to in the book. Um, I'm not going to do a lot of spoilers about the book. Needless to say, it's called Committed. It's by Dr. Adam Stern, and you need to buy it and listen to it and read it not listen to it. Well, you could listen to it. It's probably on audio as well. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Adam Stern, uh, I'd like to plug the show. You know where to find us, but write a brief review, subscribe, and rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague. And as always, let me know how I'm doing and how I can, and how I can improve the show. Without further ado, Dr. Adam Stern on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, I'm really delighted and pleased to have with me Dr. Adam Stern on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast, who is a recent book author. I believe this is the first book that Adam has written, uh, and it's titled Committed. I have asked Adam to come on the show, and he generously agreed to talk about the book, what the book was, uh, is, is about. But really, more importantly, how do we apply some of these lessons learned in the book into real life? And, and are there any intersections between what you wrote, Adam, and um, what we've been experiencing over the past couple of years with COVID-19? So, but before we start, Adam, for, for listeners and um, who, are, who are just listening to us, and maybe for some viewers, who are you? Where do you work? And what made you decide that you wanted to write a book in the first place? Thank you. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. My uh, title is I'm the director of psychiatry at a place called the Berenson Allen Center for Non-Invasive Brain Stimulation. That's a center that lives in Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, which is part of the Harvard Medical School system. All of that is uh, only tangentially related to the book itself, which is really a journey of how I uh, went through medical uh, training and, and then psychiatric training to become, at the end of the day, a psychiatrist that I hope is competent and, and well-connected to patients. My journey toward going and writing this book was a long one and, and, and one that I never in a million years would have predicted. Can I take a few minutes and tell you how, how it went? Because oh, of course, Actually, that's, that, that's, that's very that's, that's why we're here, I guess. Um, so, you know, I think that 
uh, writing has always been something that I've been very interested in, both um, because I think and hope people will connect with the writing that I do, but also because it's one of the ways that I process my experience in the world. And uh, I had something very big to process in, in 2018. Uh, in January, January 19th, to be specific, of 2018, I was given the news that I was diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, it was a Friday afternoon and I was uh, at work. I had gone to the neighboring hospital to get my scans done after a bout of uh, gross hematuria. Uh, I was 33 years old at the time, so renal cell I knew was on the differential, but, you know, it could have been a kidney stone. There were various things that could have potentially been uh, behind this. It was a Friday afternoon, and I said, I, I can't possibly wait all weekend uh, to get the result of this scan that I just had. So I got, I went down to medical records, and I did what you absolutely should never do, which is I requested a disc, and I said, I'll just bring this disc back to my own department find, uh, back to my own medical center, I'll find someone in radiology, I'll ask them very nicely just to look at it with me. And it was by that time, it was about 5pm, I couldn't find, uh, maybe I was in the wrong section of the of the department, but I don't couldn't worry, find it. radiologists don't work after 5pm. I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say it. Psychiatrists aren't known for long hours either. Um, but, but, you know, I, I finally, uh, I said, well, I'm in this room with these computers and the monitors and I'll, I'll just put it in. Maybe I'll see something. I'm a psychiatrist. I should not have been doing that. But what, as soon as I put in this CT urogram into the uh, machine, the image that came up was, you know, it, it could not possibly have been missed. Uh, anybody would have been able to see something was not right. There was this three-dimensional rotate, you know, um, image that you could rotate around of the urinary system lit up and you could see my, my beautiful right kidney that looked just like a kidney is supposed to look. And then on the left side, uh, or I should say the right side of the screen, which was my left kidney, uh, there was just this uh, gigantic, exploding, entropic mass uh, that, that you know anyone would have known that is not the way that's supposed to look. Uh, and so then I, I was texting photos to my brother who's uh, an internal, he's a cardiologist now, uh, but I, he knows more about medicine than I do. And I was saying, this looks really bad, but I was using really much more colorful language. And uh, then, you know, um, really uh, putting me out of a degree of uh, intense, you know, um, I, I want to say misery, but that's not the right word. It was, it was, it was anxiety. fear, anxiety, overwhelmed. I, what does this mean? I, I got a call, you know, in, in, within half an hour of looking at that image from the primary, uh, primary care doctor who had ordered the test. And so uh, at that moment in 2018, I, I only knew I had this um, kidney mass and I didn't know much else. I started going to Google as, as another step that nobody should take. Uh, and looking up survival rates of kidney cancer. And, you know, from the very early preliminary looks of things, it was a stage three, uh, it was about a nine centimeter mass, it extended into the renal vein, but uh, it, it wasn't clearly beyond that point. So it was listed as likely stage three. And so I looked for survival rates at stage three kidney cancer. And at that time in 2018, if you just Googled this, it showed up as 53%. And I just thought that is uh, such a cruel number. Uh, at the time, as I sat with the diagnosis, uh, I thought 53%, it's a coin flip. It's not 90% and it's not 10%. It's 
it's really, you may as well flip a coin about whether you'll be alive in five years or not. And um, what I, I, I then became a, a real student of this disease, but why I'm telling you this story in this way is that at that moment, I, I, I spent in my, the surgery that happened that week and then the subsequent recovery, I really thought a lot about that uh, moment of, of being told there's this 53% chance that you'll be alive in five years. Prior to that, I had a life that was super unremarkable in the most magnificent way. Uh, you know, I, we had just had a baby a year before we had moved to, to a house in the suburbs. Uh, I had been promoted in, in, um, in the department of psychiatry. Things were just sort of starting to, to fall into place in my life. And this was uh, an asteroid from space, you know? And I wrote this piece not even having any idea of where it might, if, if ever it would even be published. But I wrote this piece about how when I was a kid uh, and we were looking forward to something uh, like a, going to a baseball game with my family uh, and we'd look at the weather report a week out and my father would say, you know, a week out the, the likelihood that, that whether it's sunny or rainy on the weather report, it's about 50%, you may as well flip a coin. And that stuck with me. And I thought about that and trying to relate it to survival rates. So I wrote this piece sort of about the cruelty of survival rates, Kaplan-Meier survival curves, things like that at the individual level, because you're not a curve, you're a dot on that curve. Uh, and frankly, when you're looking at survival rates, you're looking backwards at the last five years, not necessarily where you are going forwards five years. And so um, I wrote this piece and then I brought it to the, I, I reached out to someone at the medical center who works in media relations. I said, I have this piece and I don't know what to do with it. She said, oh, well, we have a good working relationship with the local NPR station. Why don't we share it with them? So they, they liked it, they, they published it. And then I ended up doing that almost like every step of the way over the last three years. I ended up writing and I started getting more and more dare I say, even ambitious about like, I started shooting for the stars in terms of like uh, submitting pieces to uh, the New York Times and the Boston Globe and uh, New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and all these places that before the diagnosis, I never even really occurred to me that I could write essays for them, you know? Um, but once you are living with a disease like cancer and you realize how um, serendipitous in the positive and negative way uh, life is you you lose certain a certain degree of fear about even approaching editors and approaching shooting for your the stars and whatever you're doing and so i started doing this and one of those pieces caught the eye of a literary agent who said to me hey have you ever thought about writing a book and of course like I've thought about writing a book since I was a small child. I would love to write a book, you know? And so, so that's where this book eventually came from. The book has nothing to do with my cancer journey. It takes place entirely before uh, the diagnosis. It takes place 10 years ago when I was a resident, but uh, there, there it was, uh, you well, know. We'll, it, we'll talk about that. I, I mean, despite the fact that I think it had nothing to do with your diagnosis, Adam, part of me, this is the psychiatrist in me. Yeah it's hard to compartmentalize and deny the fact that maybe that experience affected some elements of the book writing, whether it is how you conveyed certain messages or what you said. We'll talk about that. When were you in training? When did you finish your training? 
I trained in psychiatry at the Harvard Longwood program from 2010 to 2014. 2014. And then the book really is describing your training experience uh, uh, and how the training program makes a psychiatrist out of you. Why did you, why did you want to like, what, what it, it just seems it's not relevant pretty much to the cancer story that you told us about, although somehow that cancer story was the reason a literary agent even knew about you. I'm trying to connect the dots and I feel I'm missing something. Help. Yeah, me no, you're right. Together. That makes, that makes total sense because it is a bit strange. Uh, the way it went was uh, once the agent reached out and I said, I'd, I would be delighted. And I signed on with the agency. Um, then we spent a few months, the agent and I going back and forth about what kind of book could I write? And, and the idea is it has to be both something that the author is uh, one of the only people that could tell this particular story about, you know, so it has to be something that the author has a, a degree of expertise in, but also that has some sort of commercial um, interest, you know, that has a demand that there will be a readership for. So we we went all around, you know, and so we started out, I started proposing that we might put a collection of my essays together about being a, a, a patient and physician at the same time and how that's changed my perspective. Uh, the issue there was that that story has been told and told artfully and well and beautifully. Uh, books like uh, When Breath Becomes Air have, have done that. And so the agent, when I would go to her with proposals like that, she would say, you know, you would write a terrific, a terrific book about that, but it's actually not uh, really commercially viable. It would be another uh, book like others. Exactly. And, and you really, you want to write something original and, and that's never been told before. Uh, and so then we started uh, coming up with more prescriptive options, things that I could tell as a psychiatrist, how do you cope around a devastating, um, earth shattering kind of news or diagnosis, things that I've learned over the course of, you know, more of a, uh, from my, from my area of expertise, how can I apply that to what's happened to me? And, and those were fine. We, we were making progress, but they were all sort of what what I think she referred to as sort of small potatoes kind of books. Um, they would sell a few copies maybe and and help a few people maybe. Um, and then one day it just sort of occurred to me, all of my best thinking occurs to me in the shower. I, I, it's like <laughs> it's like all of the other noise in my life is is drowned out just for those 15 minutes I might be in the shower. So my best idea, this book, the, the idea of this book, it just popped into my head. I said, you know, I, I met my wife in training. We had uh, amazing, amazing people in our class, so much so that the, the faculty was, was sort of raving about the match that they had. And I was not one of them. You know, I considered myself uh, lucky and like I slipped in somehow. They said like, we, we matched you know, 10 of our top 15 people. And I was like, oh, I wasn't one of those 10. I was in the other group, you know? Uh, and most of my colleagues in the class, they were from really esteemed places that I was coming from SUNY Upstate Medical University in upstate New York in Syracuse. So I thought to myself, how am I here? How did that happen? You know? And so immediately two of the themes of the book sort of started to come out in my mind uh, of 
how do you overcome imposter syndrome when you have earned something, you've achieved something, but you don't feel like you belong? Uh, and the second is, how do you connect with the people around you? Uh, and then the, the, the other theme that really I think is uh, sort of became natural was when I, when I looked back at my time in, in uh, residency training, uh, that, that uh, chasm between what people think about psychiatrists, they, they, I think psychiatrists have, you can tell me, but I think that they have a reputation for being aloof, cerebral, thinking about things, reflecting questions back to you in a, sort of an annoying way. Uh, there are lots of, you know, if you tell someone you're a psychiatrist at a dinner party, that's going to change the whole nature of the dinner party. You know, um, they have idea. Every other New Yorker cartoon is about a psychiatrist in some way. Uh, there are a lot of hangups that society has about psychiatry, but you take a 26 year old, just recently graduated medical student and they're nothing like that. You know, they have, they don't fit that mold at all. Uh, and so I thought, how do you get from point A to point B? I thought that was such an interesting idea that's never really been told. So there are some books about psychiatry, but never from that perspective of taking someone whose friends are in New York City at bars, they have paying jobs, you know, that are, they're, they're, they're starting their lives. Uh, and you're sitting there working 80 hours a week in the inpatient locked unit, psychiatry unit at the medical center and trying to, to sort of come of age. You know, that idea has never been told in a story. And I thought those, the, all of the, putting all of that together could be a really uh, neat book. And that's what, I, that's what I tried to do with Committed. And how did you come up with the title Committed? I, that's another journey. Uh, we, we had, originally I had called the book The Golden Class and it's a tongue in cheek reference to that, how they thought that we were, you know, that they had matched so well with all these residents from Yale and Duke and uh, all these really, uh, Harvard and all these really top-notch medical schools. And we called ourselves the golden class because, it, like I said, tongue in cheek, we didn't really feel like we were golden. <laughs> we felt like we didn't know what we were doing half the time. And we had to learn just like all the residents do. Um, and so that was the original title and it didn't land because it doesn't come across. If you just see a title, you don't know that it's used in a tone of uh, tongue in cheek or sarcasm, sarcasm doesn't come across. You need context for that. So then we bounced around with lots of different ideas. And finally, uh, I was at, this was just before the pandemic. I, I think it was honestly February 14th, 2020. Uh, I was out to dinner with my wife and I heard someone at the table next to me used the word commitment. And I thought commitment, that's a word that has lots of meanings. In psychiatry, commitment is involuntary treatment. See why we get scared of psychiatrists? Because <laughs> we just hear the word commitment and there you go, you go analyzing it and like, wait a minute, commitment. That's you got why. it. That's it, yep. Yeah. But so I, I said, in, in this case, it works at, at a few different levels, it works it has something to do with the field. It has something to do with how you're positively committed to your job and your, your attitude toward your work and toward your patients. And it's commitment to, there's this question of, will I end up with my wife or not, you know, throughout the course of the book. And so um, all of those things, I, that's how we ended up with the, so the let, title. Let, let's start a little bit of, um, you know, a couple of things just to bring listeners and viewers into, into how the book was structured. So in terms of training, I mean, you know, how do you take somebody 
Well, first of all, medical students who are going into residency, something must have attracted them to the psychiatry field. I mean, whatever that is, but something must have attracted them. Um, and, then, and then there's a training program that will make a psychiatrist out of you. My first question to you is what made you wanna be a psychiatrist as opposed to a cardiologist, an internist, an oncologist? What was there about psychiatry um, that really intrigued you and you made you wanna become one? Thank you for that question. I love that question because in my family, what you do is you, you become a cardiologist. Uh, so my father's a cardiologist. My brother and I grew up admiring him, uh, the, the way that his patients adored him, the way that, or at least seemingly, you know, adored him. And uh, the idea that he was using his smarts to do good for the world and help people with this very serious uh, organ, you know. Um, so uh, my brother and I ended up on the same track, we were in medical school the same years, uh, 2006 to, to 2010. He's a few years older, but he took a more circuitous route. And I went straight through from med school, from college to med school to residency. So I spent all of medical school hoping that I would fall in love with a different field, uh, with a more traditional medical field. Uh, because I, like a lot of people, I, I uh, appreciated the stigma of psychiatry the idea that it's a bit different in some ways from a lot of other medical fields, there's potential for it to grow and sort of rejoin the community of medicine, of broader medicine uh, over the next 10, 20 years, but it's not there yet. You know, we still carry with us some of the scars from the last hundred years uh, in a way that a lot of other fields don't. So I was waiting. I, my first clinical rotation was psychiatry and I loved it. And the reason I loved it was that every patient had a story. The thing that was most important about their treatment was who they were and what their experience of that life was. That was like step number one. Without uh, knowing and understanding that, you couldn't possibly figure out the right diagnosis or treatment. Uh, and then the rest of my third year in medical school, I, I rotated through the other, you know, other clinical rotations, medicine, surgery, neurology, uh, you name it. And uh, nothing, I, and I enjoyed them all. And I think I did okay in, in a lot of them, but um, I was pretty good at psychiatry. I thought because I was able to connect with people and, and, it was the most interesting. It was the most fascinating. Yeah. So even though I didn't even want to go, I didn't want to love it. I did. And so I had to go into it because I knew this career is going to be hopefully for a long time. And I want to love what I do. So then you went into the training program to become a psychiatrist. And I think, I presume most training programs are structured. There are certain elements that you just have to do, whether it's inpatient units, outpatient clinics, you have a curriculum that you have to study and read and so forth. Did you, as you were going through this, and now as you reflect back, did you feel that the training was sufficient to me? Like what, what was the issue that was missing in making um, a psychiatrist? I guess what I'm trying to get at, Adam, is in every training program, there are structure to make somebody out of you. Like in oncology, I'm an oncologist. I went to training and fellowship, and there was a structure to make me an oncologist. I don't know if I can write a book about how to become an oncologist, but maybe there's something specific about psychiatry 
where you're trying to, to, to describe to the world the uniqueness of a psychiatry training program or where you're trying to highlight what, what the deficiencies were to make a better psychiatrist out of you? What did you want the reader to get out of that? That's a great question. I think that like a lot of maybe procedural skills in life, uh, I'm just thinking of riding a bicycle. Uh, training in psychiatry is a little bit like that in that it is very difficult. I could tell you how to ride a bicycle, but if you have never done it before and you get on, you're going to fall over a, a bunch before your muscle memory sort of figures out how to do it. And I can't tell you, I could, I shouldn't say that. I could tell you, this is the curriculum. This is what you have to study. These are the skills. This is how you do therapy, talk therapy. This is sort of like the, the principles behind it. But what I, did, I didn't want to write a book like that. that those, there are tons of books like that. What I wanted to do was write a book where I showed you that experience. So it would be like sort of showing someone how to ride a bicycle, which isn't that uh, the analogy is now falling apart because you can't show someone how to ride a bike and expect them to, to ride a bike, but they'll have a better appreciation than if you said, oh, you just hold the handlebars and pedal and you go forward. Uh, you know, So I'm showing the experience. That's what I, my goal was to show that uh, A, you know, the people who are, I, I still feel the house officers who are managing the hospital overnight on the weekends, they're the heroes, the unsung heroes of medicine across the board. So A, I wanted to highlight, you know, this unbelievably heroic thing that, that brand new doctors are asked to do, which is carry patients, uh, you know, from point A to point B, sometimes it'll be from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. or whatever it might be until, you know, the, the, the day team arrives and show that they're actually, um, they're doing this as they're learning on the fly how to do it. You know, in the book, I give an example. My, the very first consult I ever got was, it was when I was rotating over the neurology service and it was to determine if, if a patient was dead, was brain dead or not. And I had never done that. So I, in real time, I had to, uh, you know, sort of like look up how to do that. And then I had to perform that uh, task and she was not brain dead uh, in, this, in this particular story. And, and it was to convey to the reader, look, this is how a lot of early medical training goes. You walk into a situation, you have to, with, with tutelage, you know, with guidance and mentorship, you figure out how to do the job. You try to do it as best as you possibly can. And then you worry for a long time that you did it wrong. And then hopefully uh, everybody comes out on the other side uh, for the better. And after years of that, you end up with a skill set and actually an experience of, of being a, a, an attending physician. So if, if, I was a if I was a student who is interested in psychiatry and I read that book, what, what um, do I become more nervous about becoming a psychiatrist? Do I become more encouraged? Do I, um, as a student, what, what, what do you imagine the reaction of students who read the book? First and foremost, I hope that they look at it and say, well, if this guy can do it, I could do it too. Uh, because you'll see uh, in, in over the course of the book, there is just filled with pages where I am getting myself into situations where I'm saying, I don't know exactly how this is going to unfold. I need to figure this out. And, 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 you know, it's able to work out 
because there are so there are so many different sort of safety nets. You know, there are senior residents that you can call upon. There are attendings at home that you can call upon. There are all these uh, different sort of safety nets that are available. So, so a I would want students to know. You know, this is something that almost everyone goes through when they go through training. I'm more worried about a trainee who thinks they know everything than the trainee who's nervous that they don't know enough. Um, yeah. But 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 second of all, I would say that that I think anyone reading the book, but especially students who might be even interested in psychiatry, I think that they should come away knowing that the core of psychiatry, the first 90% is connecting to the person across the room from you um, as a human being, person to person. And then, like I, I like to say, all the bells and whistles of psychiatry, all the techniques, all of the therapies, all of the interventions, the medicines, you know, those, those can occur after you've achieved that first 90%. Did you did you elaborate on mental health and or as a psychiatrist uh, who is treating folks with mental health problems uh, during the pandemic? I mean, you obviously wrote the book uh, as we were going through the COVID-19 pandemic, or did you completely compartmentalize this and you said it's out of context, out of scope, I'm not going to address it? That's a good question. In the context of the book, it was uh, not, you know, not mentioned um, because, you know, because the book really is, uh, based on my experience, which happened in 2010 to 2014. So I didn't touch on COVID at all. Uh, and the pandemic has certainly changed. It's rocked psychiatry. Sometimes when I like to think about my own journey, you guys are too busy. Hey, it was, I think a psychiatrist invented that virus, by the way. <laughs> no, uh, Hey, for <laughs> listeners, please, I'm joking, please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be canceled in two seconds. Somebody's no, gonna, yeah. no, no, no. Once I, one, one time, um, a, a very long time ago, I was speaking to someone who was a roofer, and uh, there was a lot of rain that season. And I said, this must be great for you. And he just sort of sighed and said, no, I don't want it to rain all the time. You know, it's like, that's what psychiatry is. We've got enough work to do uh, yeah. in the best of times. You know, let me, yeah. let me- But really, that. I mean, people, I mean, you you and psychologists are very busy. Um, Adam, I wanna, I wanna spend a little bit more time on the imposter syndrome a little bit. Um, sure. Maybe just a little bit of basics for listeners. I mean, I think we all know what it is, but when was scientifically, was this like something, was it a syndrome that was described by somebody in a particular mm. year? Like, is there, you know what I mean? Is this, this entity, when did it become scientifically accepted entity, I guess? You know, I, I actually think that I'm going to display a bit of uh, naivete here because I've written all about this in the book from a first person perspective. And I never did the research to say, hey, was this actually academically described at some point? And what was the, you know, what, what's the basis of it? So I will, in full disclosure, I will just say here, which is a lesson that I learned in residency, when you don't know something, say you don't know it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna make something up. So I don't no, know. And, and it's something for us to research as well. But I think for, for the most part, I mean, aside from researching it academically, what is imposter syndrome? Yeah, so I would define it as being in a situation where you you internally in your inner experience of your situation feel like you don't actually belong, that you've somehow achieved that status by mistake, and that you will be revealed to the world to be a fraud. Uh, that that's how I define it, and I think that it's an almost 
ubiquitous experience among medical trainees who are self-selecting to be high achieving people who have to work really hard to get to where they are. And it is not spoken about very openly. I think most people in, in any residency training class across the board, if you surveyed everyone and said, how are you doing with the material and how are your classmates doing? Almost all across the board, my guess is people will say they're doing okay, maybe not quite good enough and their classmates are doing great. Yeah. Do you think imposter syndrome exists more in medicine versus other sectors, other fields? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Why do you think that is? For me, it's it's because medicine people. I, I I'm gonna say this. This is a speculation, but I'm gonna say it. I, I think medicine is a field of training that you can't fake it by intellect alone, right? So I'm gonna just say, and I write about this in the book. You know, like things like the SATs, they came fairly easily to me. Uh, I. I lucked out in whatever, you know, lottery uh, of, of inheritance there is. SAT math, the hardest question on the SAT section, uh, the math section of the SATs, that's the hardest question my brain can compute, you know? So I did really well uh, in high school, you know? And then I, I went to a good college. I went to Brown University and I did fine there because there are ways to do okay using mostly your intellect. Um, when I got to med school, I couldn't fake it at all anymore. I couldn't skate by at all. I had to work constantly just to get by in medical school. I had to study, I had to read and try to, you know, it, it's the best analogy I ever hear about it is trying to drink from a, a, a fire hose with trying to get through medical school of just the, it's a different skill set than I'd ever used yeah. before. Yeah. And I think that most people probably go through that kind of experience. They've always done well. Uh, I think the people who have had to work hard their entire lives probably do better and have it easier in medical school. Um, and then residency is like that in a different way because it flips it around. When you're in residency, it's not so much about your textbook knowledge as it is about your ability to get things done in a safe and effective way in, in a foreign language, in a foreign environment that you've never been in before. And yeah. so it's, it's a setup for imposter syndrome because every four years they take you from one environment that you finally mastered and they put you in a brand new one. And how do we overcome that? Like, how do we overcome imposter syndrome? Because I think that I, I tend to agree with you, although I do not have data to support my, um, my claim that it's probably more prevalent in, in the medical field. But how do, are there certain steps that someone who identifies himself or herself as having imposter syndrome to overcome that? Yeah, so there's, I think that community is a, an incredibly important factor. So in our residency training, they do something very nice that is, there's a, there's a didactic course that is, uh, it's had a few different names over the years. When I took it, it was called Becoming a Psychiatrist, but we called it Feelings Class because it was basically the residents getting together and sharing with each other their insecurities, uh, their fears, their clinical experiences that were, that didn't go right, that they worried about. And the other, let's say 10 or so people in the room identifying with each other and saying, you know, I had that happen too. 
Uh, and I've, you know, so-and-so uh, told me this was the way to figure it out. And it actually worked really well. Um, or yeah, I've had that too. And I haven't figured it out yet, you know? So that's one way is, is connecting with people across the board at the peer level. And then also having the people above you, you know, our residency training director on the very first day said, you all belong here. It's not going to feel like you do, but you do. You're not here by mistake. And so preempting it, I think is also a useful tool. So we talked about the imposter, we talked about the training piece and, and so forth. What, what is the third element that you would like to highlight to listeners that the book um, elaborates on? Yeah, so I think that the third element is really this, this part that I mentioned a bit earlier about in terms of human connection and that you have to do things that you're passionate about and you have to be passionate about medicine or psychiatry in this case to really do it well. And to do that, you have to care about the people that you're treating and working with, right? So you care about your patients because you care about them as people. You have to trust your colleagues. Uh, you have to connect with them uh, because when you go home for the night, you're leaving their your patient's care in their hands, right? Uh, someone is staying behind and taking and, and saying, these patients are gonna be okay when you get back in the morning. That idea never, I never even thought about that idea before residency training, um, but it's absolutely the, the case and true across the board. So you have to trust and connect with the people you work with. You have to be passionate about connecting with the human beings behind the illnesses or disorders that you're treating. Um, and, and you have to basically, at the end of the day, we're all people trying to connect and see each other as, as not doctor treating patient, but, uh, I, I have a special set of skills and I can help you and let's figure out together the best way to do that. You know, if you can approach medicine or in this case, psychiatry that way, you're most of the way there, I think. My last question to you, Adam, and, and uh, you know, it's a little bit outside the book, but it's tough to have a psychiatrist on the show during a pandemic without talking about the impact of the pandemic on mental health and mental illness. And I think one of the things that I've struggled with as, as I've had a lot of guests on the show is that um, some of the policies that get implemented, whatever that policy is, we're not talking politics, we're talking healthcare policy, ignore sometimes the impact of a policy on the mental health of individuals that are affected by that policy, whether it's social distancing, whether whatever it is. I realize the importance of a specific policy in, in certain situations, but it's often not talked about enough, the impact of these on the mental health of kids and adults, obviously. And I've had a couple of guests discuss that with me on the show. As a psychiatrist, um, A, um, was this something you were prepared for? Uh, I mean, it's not something happens once in 100 years. It's probably unlikely that you were trained in it. And then how do you really handle that with, you know, and, and, and any thoughts on, the, on what you've observed over the past year and a half uh, with COVID and mental health? Right. So that you're, you're absolutely right that that is something that it's getting more attention, but it's still not even getting enough attention um, because mental health is health. Uh, it's quality of life, right? And so the pandemic has, in, in no doubt, it has taken things to the nth degree. It has exaggerated minor symptoms and caused them to become major symptoms. It has uh, caused new onsets but you know, people who are, have never even been diagnosed with COVID are experiencing anxiety and depression at levels never seen before, or at least at levels 
that are, uh, you know, uh, uh, much higher than they were before the pandemic. People with COVID are experiencing um, a, a degree of uh, neurologic and psychiatric symptoms that we are just learning about and, and starting to understand. And then as you alluded to, the policy decisions that have been implemented add a lot of confounding variables that we don't yet understand. Um, and I know you've talked with some prior guests about that it will take years for us to sort of see how this unfolds. Uh, you know, it's not, I've seen a couple of recent studies that said, hey, good news, uh, suicide rates aren't up yet. Uh, we thought they'd be up, but they're not up. And that is good news, of course, but it's too early to, to sort of say mission accomplished. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's going to take a long time for us to sort of really see how this affects people over time, in particular, of course, developing children. Um, the, the one, and I, I want to echo what I've, I know other people have said as well, is that the one saving grace here is that uh, people are inherently resilient, that psychiatrists tend to see the, uh, the examples of people where the resilience has worn thin enough that it has become a major problem. But we're all experiencing tremendous shared collective trauma around this pandemic. Um, many of us will do okay. Most of us will probably do okay, but we'll never forget it and we won't be unchanged by it. That's the other thing. Yeah. If you think about shared trauma, an example like September 11th, 2001, uh, you know, and how that's still people, if you, if you bring that data. Everyone, everyone remembers when they, where they were on September 11, 2001, and what they were doing. Everyone who was adult enough to remember, remembers right. that day. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And beyond that, it impacted how they thought about the world. You know, there are, there are a lot of sort of interesting studies or articles looking at generational impacts of how uh, the generations that came of age after that in the wars during the time of, of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and how that's changed their perception of, uh, you know, sort of what kind of economy they uh, want to exist in and how they want to interact and what careers they want to have. So all of this is, is preamble to say, you know, we don't know how this is all going to shake out, yeah. but it, I bet it's a good bet to say that psychiatry is going to be needed, that mental health is going to be a major uh, challenge in the years ahead. And, and, I'm all in favor of uh, su supporting mental health services so that we can be ready to help when when the problems arise. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being on the Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, congratulations on the book. The book is committed by Dr. Adam Stern, and uh, um, I uh, look forward to getting a lot of positive feedback on the book. Thank you so much, and good luck with everything. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me on. Thanks everyone for joining the Healthcare Unfiltered. I very much appreciate your support and I appreciate you being with the show. Let me know how we're doing. You can direct message me on Twitter. That's at Shadi Nabhan, at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, OO at Outlook.com or visit my website, Shadi Nabhan. Dot com. You can also visit our YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can see some videos that we put on the YouTube channel. And always let us know what you think. Subscribe, rate, and review. Refer a colleague or a friend. And let us know 
where we can improve on things. I appreciate your support as always. And uh, before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote. Live life. Live life. Life is short. It's by an unknown author. But live life. It is short. Until next time, take care. And see you and talk to you soon.